Our scripture this morning is found in the book of Judges, uh, chapter 6, verses 11 through 24. And then I will be reading a short passage from Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Bezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, Lord? Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But but now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of the Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait for your return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, and from an ephath, of flour, he made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of his staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace. Do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there, and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Bezrites. In Ephesians chapter 2. For he himself is our peace. Who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Does the date, the 30th of September, 
1938 mean anything to you? It might just to some of us. You see, that was the day that Neville Chamberlain, then Prime Minister of Great Britain, returned to 10 Downing Street and made a statement. He had just come from Munich, where he had met with Adolf Hitler, and for years he had been following a policy of appeasement with Mussolini and Hitler. And he said with characteristic modesty, this is the second time in our history that there has come from Germany to Downing Street peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. Well, with his usual candor, Winston Churchill described Chamberlain's European escapade as a total unmitigated defeat. And soon Britain was at war. Not long after, Chamberlain was out of office. Unfortunately, he had miscalculated. In this fallen world, peace does not come. Lasting peace does not come that easily. In fact, many of us probably are concerned as we listen to the news today. And we realize that although there are efforts that are made, the world sits on something of a powder keg and could be plunged into major war. And you know I'm no alarmist before we know what happens. But let's bring things a little closer to home. At a personal and domestic level, we experience tension. And I dare say there's some of us here who are city, sitting here this morning regretting the fact that there's huge tension in your pers pers <clears throat> pardon me, personal relationships. And so it may be that you don't get along with a particular neighbor or with your parents, your children, your siblings, your spouse. You may not even get along with yourself too well. And these fractured relationships cause you grief. And you wish you experienced genuine peace. Peace right deep down inside. Peace, first of all, with yourself, and then peace with those closest to you. And you wish you lived in a world of peace instead of a world characterized by so much trouble. Of course, peace, you know, is, is an incredibly elastic term. You can have peace by repression. I'm sure that many of you have traveled with small children in the back of the car. We used to undertake a 1,500-kilometer journey with a son and a daughter at the back there. You'd give them games to play, but it took about 25, 30 kilometers. And there was an elbow. And then you would hear, David! And you know there's trouble. And so your hands are on the steering wheel. What are you going to do with these brats at the back? Say, hey, give it up. But they just continue. And then I had a brainwave. I just pulled over. And I said, guys, we're not putting up with this. 
any more of this, this is a nice dad, you see, gentle father, any more of this and you can get out and walk. I would just suggest that you take the left fork, not the right, otherwise you'll get lost. Now it's a bit of a way to go. Now they knew that I usually meant what I said. Little did I know that my daughter believed me so implicitly that she was plotting the route. <laughs> but from then on, all I had to do when the fighting started was just slow the car down and start to pull over to the side. And there was peace. <laughs> peace by repression. Peace by bullying. It was quiet. But there wasn't really peace, was there? That's peace by repression. There can also be peace by placation. When in fact you have relative peace in relationships because you give way and you don't observe principle. As a result, there can be an uneasy truce, what seems like a peace. And so we need this morning when we look at this vital subject of peace, to define our terms very carefully indeed. We're going to start with the passage before us and then broaden out so that we see this great theme in Scripture and then focus on what I think is most crucial uh, for each one of us here this morning. Let me start by just saying this. In this fallen world... Genuine peace often comes at a huge cost. The pathway to peace inevitably runs through the conflict zone of adversity and strife. If it's cheap, it is unlikely to be genuine peace. That's what Chamberlain thought he had. But it took far more for there to be peace. So we start with a story of Gideon. Gideon. Gideon was not such a great guy as you read the passage. He was no hero, but he was the man whom God chose to deliver his people. The story goes like this. When God's people came into the promised land, he told them that he would bless them abundantly if they obeyed him. If, however, they disobeyed him, they would suffer the consequences. They would experience trouble from within and incursions from without. Now the story here is that the Midianites and the Amalekites, we've met them before and they were dead set on destroying Israel, used to invade the land and they did so for seven years. Just when the Israelites had planted their crops, these hordes would come over, quite a number of them, and they would ravish the land. Destroy. There was spitefulness and vindictiveness. Not only did they want the stuff for themselves, but what they couldn't take, they just destroyed. And so, of course, that meant that the people were impoverished, they were suffering, but they had no way of standing against this allied army that just came and ravaged their land. So what they would do is they had caves and strongholds in the mountains. And when they knew the Midianites and their allies were on their way, they would head up to the mountains and hide and wait until their land was absolutely devastated. Then these people would go home. Then they would crawl out of their caves and they had 
relative peace. No loss of life because of appeasement or at least taking the course of least resistance. Then God meets with Gideon. Now, it's an interesting scene, and we've looked at it before, but in a different context and from a different angle. A stranger appears and sits under a terebinth or an oak tree and summons Gideon and begins a conversation with Gideon that shocks him. The stranger says to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now read about Gideon and you realize that that was rather a flattering term. So he says, sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? But the stranger replied, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Gideon objects, but how can I save Israel? I'm uh, the least in my family. My family is not the greatest in the tribe of Manasseh. And the Lord says to him, go. I will be with you and you will strike down the Midianites altogether. There was no other alternative. By this time, Gideon is obviously wondering about the identity of the stranger. And if you look at the words that are used in the passage, he begins to suspect that this imposing stranger is more than just a man. And he wonders whether this is an angel. In fact, as we read on, we discover this is the angel of the Lord. And where that term is used in Scripture, it refers not just to an angel, but to what is generally known as a theophany, an appearance of God in angelic form. Quite remarkable, the whole incident. So he begins to address the stranger and says, please wait here while I go prepare a meal. Eastern hospitality. But more than that, the word used for meal can refer to an offering given to God. And he prepares the meal, and the type of meal he prepares can easily double up as a sacrifice. Now, this is something of a test. You know, Gideon likes to lay out these, these tests, as it were, to, to ascertain whether God is really going to do what he says he will do. He brings this, and, and the angel of the Lord says, place it on the rock then touches the food, the meat, the unleavened bread, and the broth that is poured out as a libation, and fire flares from the rock and burns, consumes the sacrifice, and immediately the angel of the Lord disappears. But Gideon continues in his discussion with God. First of all, he's terrified. You see, he realizes that this stranger is not just an angel or a man, but that he has actually met face-to-face -face with God. And it was believed that if you met face-to-face -face with God, you were a goner. You would die because no one could see God face-to-face -face and live. And so, uh, in this state of mind, he wonders what will happen to him, and he says, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel face to face, and God says to him, Shalom, peace, 
do not be afraid. You are not going to die. And after this event, Gideon builds an altar. And he calls the altar Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. This was no doubt because the first word the Lord spoke to him after this incident was Shalom, peace. But there's actually more to it than this. In fact, the entire incident gives us an insight into what happens when God brings peace to his world. As we continue the story, we realize that the Israelites for some time had had a peace with disgrace, a peace without honor, a peace that was probably the worst thing that could happen short of their total devastation. The pathway, remember, the pathway to peace in this fallen world inevitably runs through the conflict zone of adversity and strife. For there to be peace, First, there has to be trouble. Gideon must risk his life. And so the first thing that he has to do is he has to cut down the Asherah pole and destroy the altar of Baal that were his own fathers. You can see how, how low the people had sunk. He decides to do that at night, gets t t 10 of his servants, and when they, people wake up in the morning, they see the altar of Baal devastated. And then he has to sacrifice a bull to the Lord using the Asherah pole, the wood from the Asherah pole, for the fire. Well, as the people see this, they are absolutely incensed. In such a short while, they have turned from serving Yahweh to serving Baal. They are incensed and they want to kill him. But Gideon's father argues that if he has offended Baal, then Baal has to get him back, take it out on him as a result. And so they give him the name Jerob Baal, which means let Baal contend. He has not only offended his compatriots, he has now offended Baal. But again, we come back to the thought, a cheap peace, a peace achieved without some trouble is probably no peace at all. Real peace involves the righting of wrongs. Lasting peace is possible only where there is justice. And genuine peace must address the root cause of our condition. And such peace as we shall see is extremely costly. Now the story of Gideon is fairly well known from this point on. I'll just touch on the details without uh, too much elaboration. Gideon is instructed to call the people together. The Midianites and their allies assemble. Usually they just walked into the land and took over. But now Gideon has blown the trumpet and summoned people from his own clan and also people from his own tribe and people from the northern tribes of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. 
he now has an army of 32,000, still small, to confront this huge invading army like a swarm of locusts. But God says you have too many. Tell them whoever wants to go home, whoever is afraid, they must leave. So the army whittles down from 32,000 to less than a third, and 10,000 are left. That's a very small army to deal with the Midianites. But God says you still have too many. Further reductions necessary, because otherwise you're going to think that you have achieved the victory. And so they have to go and, and get some water at this, uh, at this well, and there's a test, and I'm not even going to try to, to uh, work out exactly why certain drank one way and others drank the other way, but it whittled down, to make a long story short, from 10,000 to 300. Now, how are 300 people going to take on this army? The truth is that God himself was winning this battle. Their weapons were trumpets and torches. And the foreign invading army was in such confusion that they attacked one another. And Gideon and the Israelites were rid of the Midianites. But it had cost a huge price in Gideon's terms. God had delivered them but they had not taken the course of least resistance. There was all a matter of fear and so on, but they had to take a stand in the situation. Now, that's an, that's an interesting story from the Old Testament. It's a significant story. But in one way, it is, it is just a microcosm of the biggest story that takes place throughout Scripture. You see, the whole of the Bible can be seen as the story of disharmony being brought to a position of harmony. Right at the beginning, there is a picture of perfect harmony between God and his, the crown of his creation. But that peace is shattered as a result of rebellion and sin. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us of an idyllic situation. Genesis 3 tells us of the destruction of that peace. So much so that Adam goes and does the stupid thing of hiding from God, imagining that he can hide. But he's ill at ease in the presence of God. You notice that he blames Eve. So straight away there's now disharmony. He has the audacity to even imply now that he feels the rift between himself and his creator, he has the audacity to imply that God was partly to blame. It was the woman you gave me that caused all this trouble. Look at the immediate results. He's ill at ease in God's presence. The first marital row erupts. Before long, we read of one brother rising up and murdering another as Cain kills Abel. Not until the end of human history do we see universal harmony and peace. 
That picture we're given at the last two chapters of Scripture. And so at that point, there is no war, no hostility, no tension, no murders or rapists, no idolaters or liars or fortune tellers. Nothing impure enters this perfect state. There is only joy and harmony. Perfect peace at last. But from the incursion of sin and rebellion until the end, this world is constantly in a state of disharmony, disequilibrium, and there is no peace. Then as we read this morning, the prophets begin to look forward to this great time when there will in fact be universal peace. They speak of one of whom we read this morning, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Sar Shalom, the perfect prince of peace. We so often quote verse 6 and so seldom quote verse 7 of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. From the beginning to the end of Jesus' ministry, we see him step onto the stage as the Prince of Peace. That doesn't mean there isn't trouble. That means there is trouble. Because when peace enters the conflict zone, the one who stands for God's peace, which is a peace with justice, there is going to be trouble. But look at him. At his birth, we read, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those with whom his, on whom his favor rests. When Jesus heals people, he so often says to them, go in peace. He stands on that little boat on the Sea of Galilee, and there is this huge storm, and he says, peace, be still. He says to his disciples, peace I leave with you. In the world you'll have trouble, certainly, but peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world does. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. And when he meets his disciples after the resurrection, the first thing he says to them is, peace be with you. Now there are four brief areas or areas on which I want to briefly comment related to this whole concept of peace. There's so much one can say about it. Let me focus on these four areas for just a moment. First, as I've said, the road to peace is often the road of conflict and strife. The pathway to peace inevitably runs through the conflict zone of adversity. Remember Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. He did not say, blessed are the peace lovers. In fact, the peace lovers are generally responsible for trouble in the world because they will rather have peace than deal with principle. We need to be troublesome peacemakers in that sense. Just think of Gideon. Peace at any price people are a problem. Remember, the Prince of Peace himself was often at the center of controversy. In this fallen world, that's how things 
are. But God had set about establishing a perfect, perfect, genuine peace. When you look at Calvary, you realize that that's what it was all about. If there was going to be a solution, the problem was of such a nature that it would take nothing less than that to bring about perfect peace. Peace is so costly. It cost God everything he had. He sent his son to reconcile us with himself. And that was going to come at huge cost. Secondly, you and I, although we await perfect universal harmony only in the future, can know the peace of God, the perfect peace of God, here and now. We have to ask ourselves the question, because peace in the first instance is not a feeling, it's a state of harmony, whether in fact you know the peace of God in your life. Whether you feel that you are at harmony, you enjoy the shalom, which is more than just a cessation of hostility, but you enjoy the peace of God in your life. That comes when the Prince of Peace is your Savior. It may just be that there are some here this morning, and that cannot be said of you. And I would like to, to emphasize the importance of your making peace. That is the first thing, the most important thing. And so we read in Scripture, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. When Jesus died on the cross, he took, as it were, our hands and God's hand and brought them together. As a result of faith, we can know his perfect peace. Thirdly, you can also know a sense of shalom or peace in your own heart. Think of these great words which uh, Paul wrote to the Philippians. He said, present your requests to God with thanksgiving and the peace of God which transcends understanding will keep your hearts and your minds, will act like a garrison of soldiers literally and keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I, I have spoken to so many Christians who particularly going through difficult times, may not have been aware of people praying for them or exactly who is praying for them, but there have been people praying and they've spoken of this uncanny sense of peace that descends upon them in shambolic situations very often. Too many for it to be coincidental. I can think of several instances in my own experience where that peace has been so real. One was at my, my own father's funeral. He died at 50 years of age. And uh, I had a colleague stand by. I took this, the, the memorial service, but I didn't know that I would make it, quite honestly. So this colleague kindly agreed to stand by. The family was sitting in the front pew. And it was as though a blanket of peace descended upon them. 
And you could, you could, it was palpable. You could sense that peace. And the people in the congregation could. There were, there were just literally hundreds of people commenting on what had happened. It was a large funeral. And then some time later, I got a call from what Salisbury in those days, now it's called Harari in Zimbabwe. It was a colleague. He told me about a, a man who had, uh, he and his family had just come into our area and he'd been <laughs> come down on a, a large promotion and he'd had a heart attack. No sooner had they arrived and he'd died. And now I'm on the way to their home thinking, what on earth am I going to say to these people because I can't give them false hope. On the other hand, they're grieving and they need encouragement. They don't know the Lord as Savior. They are not religious people, but I need to go. And on the way to their home, I remember that wonderful peace that settled upon our family. And so I, I just prayed that irrespective of their situation, the peace that transcends understanding, which is not a promise to them, but that they would experience that. Got to their home, we had a good visit, we had a good memorial service. I can't say that I experienced anything myself. Uh, I lost contact with the family. About 15 or 16 years later, I've now moved cities. I'm sitting in Johannesburg in my office one Friday evening. We had a, a messianic a congregation, Jewish congregation that met they met on a Friday night because that's the beginning of the Jewish Shabbat. They met on a Friday night and there's a gentle knock on my door. And here's a woman who says to me, you won't know me or remember me, but my name is Sharon. And uh, some years ago, you buried my father. And I remember sitting out there as you began to speak to us, this incredible peace. We did not know the Lord, but this incredible peace that we could not understand just seemed to descend upon us. And we felt the sense of God's peace. We didn't know exactly what it was. But from that moment on, our family began to ask, what about God in our lives? And I'm pleased to report that we all, the whole family, she, her siblings, her mother, had all come to the Lord and it had started in that way. We had lost contact with that family. It was a sense of God's peace. Now, if God in his grace will do that for a person who does not know him, he can do it for you, particularly if there are circumstances in your life that give you great grief just at the moment. And I don't know what's in your heart. Of course, only God does. But you might need to know the shalom of God in your life. And he still does that. And then lastly, and I cannot skip over this because I think it's equally important in many respects. You and I are to be agents of God's peace in a world characterized by disharmony. 
Remember Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Your presence should promote peace. That doesn't mean that there won't be conflict of any kind. It doesn't mean that you might not be persecuted. It does mean that your presence should promote God's peace in a most amazing way so that the universal peace that will one day come upon humanity, redeemed humanity, is seen, anticipated in the Christian community. That's why Paul says to the Romans, if it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There should be no belligerence. There should be an attitude in us that promotes peace in the world because we experience God's peace. But now, back to what I think was enunciated so perfectly by St. Augustine. He said, God has created us for himself, and our souls find no rest unless they find it in him. He was speaking directly to the Lord. You have created us for yourself, and our souls find no peace until they find it in you. That's the most important thing that any one of us can do. And whatever your situation is today, that's what you can do. Come to the Prince of Peace and experience his peace. Let's pray together. Father, we bow in your presence. We thank you for Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. You know our hearts and you know our needs. We want to just present ourselves now, knowing that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, is able to keep our hearts and our minds. We pray that you'll help us by our attitude to be ambassadors of your peace, we ask most of all, Lord, that our net contribution to this part of the world and to the world in general will be that we are peacemakers. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.